Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, May 16th, 2016. Today's going to be another episode of Contrast. Yeah, on Friday we played the uh, one of these things is not like the other game. We're not trying to do that again today. It's just it's kind of turning out that way. Details in a minute. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, sadly. And it really is sad. Sadly, there is no shortage of really crazy, bizarre things being said out there, we take the time to open up our Bibles and compare what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, notice I use the word instead of. To see if what they're saying squares with what God's Word says, or if they're twisting God's Word, generally teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach. That's what we do here. We're politically incorrect because not only do we name names, we actually play sound bites, And we strive really to play them in context so that you can hear what they're actually saying in context so that uh, you know, no one can say, you know, that Rose Brown guy, all he ever does is take people out of context. No, <laughs> we do long form discernment here. I'm a firm believer in context. So uh, let's talk about what it is that we're going to do today. We have three things that we're going to do today. That's it. Three things. And again, I apologize. It's not intentional, but necessary is the best way to put it. I'm not going to play the Sesame Street song like I did on Friday, but what we're going to do is we're going to do some comparative work. We're going to listen to three Pentecost sermon messages. One of them in its entirety, actually two of them in their entirety. One of them, you know, impartiality, if you, is, is that the right way of describing it? Anyway, I know I'm getting emails right now from the grammarians in the, uh, in the audience. Anyway, so we're going to start off <laughs> by listening to, uh, I think his name was Jason Hooper. And uh, from King's Way, and uh, he, we're only going to listen to a part of his message from uh, yesterday, which was Pentecost Sunday. And by the way, uh, apparently in uh, in charismatic and uh, and Pentecostal circles, there is uh, a little bit of a hubbub 
Yeah, uh, you know, because the Hebrew roots heresy has been uh, really taking root in uh, much of the charismatic movement. In fact, it's uh, some of the uh, charismatic and Pentecostal uh, televangelists who are carrying water, if you would, for much of the the false teaching regarding the Hebrew roots heresy. And so uh, uh, (laughs) Jason Hooper... He is going to, uh, well, put his foot into this, if you would, and the controversy is over when to celebrate Pentecost. If you, if your church observed Pentecost Sunday yesterday, well, <laughs> then you don't care anything about God and uh, <laughs> and the Hebrew roots. I, I'm not joking, uh, because <laughs> you know the Jewish calendar celebrates Passover and Pentecost differently. Than the Christian Church this year, and as a result of it, I mean, you you really tell you can tell if your church is influenced by Rome when it, whether or not it celebrated Pentecost yesterday. So Jason Hooper found a, an interesting way around that little thorny issue. But we're going to listen to a part of his message, a long part, if you would, to just demonstrate the absurdity, the absolute absurdity of how this man is handling Scripture, all in the name of being, you know, a, a part of the Pentecostal and charismatic movement and being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Then we're going to I mean th- I mean then we're going to take a hard hard left. And I mean it doesn't get any harder left than what we're going to do. We're <laughs> we're going to head over to uh, that uh, Mayfield Salisbury Parish Church up in Scotland uh, near Edinburgh as we listen to Scott McKenna it, oh man! And we're going to listen to the whole thing on this one uh, as he preaches his Pentecost sermon titled "A World of Faiths." And in true Scott McKenna format and fashion, he begins kind of like okay-ish, and you can tell he's building up to something. And by about two thirds of the way through this Pentecost sermon, things really get off the rails. I mean. really, really, really get off the rails, like don't even make any sense, like the exact opposite of what the Bible says kind of stuff. And then just to kind of anchor all of this, I mean, I'm a pastor. Yesterday was a Pentecost Sunday. I preached on the gospel text from the Gospel of John uh, for Pentecost Sunday, and I'm just going to throw my sermon out there and just say, you know, can you see any difference here? You see a difference. Yeah, so that's kind of what we're going to do. Although we will not be playing the one of these things is not like the other song like we did on Friday. So that's what we're going to do for today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. And uh, since we're going to start off with a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update, that requires us to do this. Oh, Hallelujah. Get up right now.
Right, that's Robert Tilton and Hubaba Kanda. We're heading down to Kingsway Churches. We listen to Jason Hoop, Hooper. Hooper, yeah, that's right. Uh, formerly of Morningstar and Rick Joyner. He and that Jason Hooper, by the way, is the guy who led the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Uh, yeah, that we've uh, <clears throat> memorialized there in our Max Holiday sketch. But uh, here he is from his message from yesterday, titled "It's Time." Yeah, let's see if you can make heads or tails of this. Here we go. Thank you, Jesus. Also, those of you who are visiting, uh, you can fill out those Connect cards. Take them to the Connect Cafe afterwards and see Amy. She'll be the one out there with the tan, right, Amy? Where'd she go? All right. So anyway, so she'll be out there. She's got those MP3 cards that she wants to give you as well. And um, wasn't worship great? Come on. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And we had an amazing time this this past Thursday, uh, we took our team up to uh, Richard and Ellen's Lake House River Rest, and uh, which that's a word right there, and just had an amazing time of strategic planning and just getting some great downloads from the Lord on what this next year, the rest of 2016 and 17 are... Getting downloads from the Lord, really. Yeah, apparently, you know, God's into dial-up service and stuff like that. To look like for Kingsway Church. And so your prayers are answered and they're continue to be answered as God begins, continues to show us the how of the what. Amen? See, we're all clear on what? Why we do what we do. And we're all clear on what we're called to do. And a lot of times it's that in between place called how that we need a little help. Amen? But how many of you are thankful that one of the names for Holy Spirit is Helper? Amen? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so nice that the Helper, you know, Holy Spirit is there to you know, give us downloads to explain to us what he would have us do for the upcoming season. Yeah. And so he really has given us some great uh, wisdom, insight, and understanding. And one of the things that we did that was just so powerful was uh, we looked back at this last year, you know, and, um, and, and how many of you know, sometimes you can become so busy in the midst of where you are, you almost don't even recognize what God has done. But then you, we, we sat around and, and we, we looked at, okay, what, what have we, like, what has the Lord led us to do that has really worked amazing and brought great life to people and to our congregation and to our city? And it was like, like six or eight of those, like, big old, like, easel pages. I mean, just, and Jeff was writing, so it was small type, and I mean, just, get, just getting it. And then we're like, well, what could we have done, you know, better? And, and honestly, like, we spent time and time. We could only come up with really four things that we as a church could have done a little bit differently or a little bit better. Uh, number one, rightly handle God's word. Number two, teach sound doctrine. Number three, repent of the false doctrine that you've been teaching. Yeah, I, I can think of a few things. And maybe had better results. And to me, that was just such an ad, just a, an admonishment of you guys and, and this house and our willingness. Because how many of you know, listen, if we lean on our own understanding, we'll get what we had. But if we can acknowledge the Lord and see him and say yes to what he asks us to do, we'll get what he wants to give. And I'm telling you, that's what we have been what? positioned for as a people and as a congregation and as one body. Why? Because it's time. Say it's time. Because it's time. That's the reason why. Feels good, doesn't it? Do you believe it? What? If you believe it, you see it and you say it, things will change. If you believe it, you see it, you say it, things will change. Says no biblical text anywhere. Amen. You know, I had a friend text me last night. He said, hey, I saw that you guys are celebrating Pentecost tomorrow. And I said, yeah. He said, so y'all are working off the Catholic calendar, not the Hebrew calendar. 
I said, well, any excuse we had to celebrate Pentecost, we're going to lay hold of it. And I said, I'm just going to be honest. We celebrate Pentecost every Sunday at Kingsway Church. Which is weird because historically the church has celebrated the resurrection of Christ every Sunday. Not Pentecost. The resurrection. Each Sunday is a little mini Easter, if you would. Always believing for an outpouring. We're always believing for a suddenly of God. That suddenly a sound will begin to fill this place. And we're always believing for, you know, suddenly. Right, yeah. What is this? The Holy Spirit will be poured out without measure, amen? And see, and, and, and then, I, you know, because at first when I saw it, because honestly I was talking to some folks that were having Pentecost gatherings, and I told Tina, I said, man, Pentecost snuck up on me. Typically I'm real good about this stuff and keeping everything kind of aligned in the calendar. And, and so, man, my heart was just excited for what God wanted to do today. So I put it on Facebook. And so when he shot me this text, I heard this little voice going, well, you, be, you better go ahead and take that down because you don't want to offend anybody that's working off the Hebrew calendar. And I'm real good at ignoring that voice, by the way. And I, and because I really felt like the Lord said, why don't you believe for a double Pentecost? (laughs) Oh, man. So (laughs) apparently the solution, if you you find yourself in charismatic circles and in that thorny situation where you're Pentecostal charismatic church, observe Pentecost on the day when the Roman Catholics observe it rather than the Hebrew calendar just play the Holy Spirit card and say, hey, the Holy Spirit told me, why don't you just believe for a double Pentecost? Yeah, that's the answer. <laughs> and so I text back, I said, you wait till June, we're going to have it both times. Because I believe that in the New Covenant, Pentecost isn't about a day or a season, but it's about the breath that we've been given and we wake up every day and get to live a life fully filled with Holy Spirit. But there's a difference between being Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. There's a lot of shakarabandais that are outside of the will of God. A a lot of what? Just saying. Romans 8.14 says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they're the sons of God. Amen? And so we don't want to just be filled. Now watch what he does here. At this point is when he starts making allusions to biblical texts without actually paying any attention to context. And what he does here is... Well, it's a form of eisegesis, but I'm not sure what it to call it quite yet. Be filled and to follow. To be filled by the Spirit and to follow the Spirit in all that we say and do. Amen? I'm going to go off script. Turn to John chapter 11. Turn to John chapter 11. And um, this was... I, I, I'm, I'm a- so he's off script now, but we're in John 11. Tempting to preach the same message we thought we were going to do last week. And, uh, and, and, uh, and if the Lord just wants us to park in this place of removing our limits for a while, I'm good with that. Because I don't want to leave any rock unturned when it comes to the ways that I've limited the Lord in my life. I want to see all limits removed off of me, off of you, and off of us, and off of this city. Amen? And we're not going to allow the distractions of the day to keep us at bay. We're not going to allow what the enemy would want to bring discouragement to our heart and outside influences to keep us from believing as God believes, seeing as God sees, and saying as God says. Because those are the three main areas that we limit an unlimited God in what we believe, what we... So so apparently we can limit an unlimited God. The sentence doesn't make any sense. ...and what we say. But turn to John chapter 11. You're already there. I'm going to catch up with you. I went to pick up my truck 
uh, on Wednesday afternoon. And no joke, you can't see it, but it's in the video. He's actually holding, you know, when you go to the auto shop, when you go to your, you know, your dealer, they put a big number on your car. You know, it could be a placard that sits, you know, that actually hangs from your rearview mirror. He's holding the number he was given when he took his car in. And those of you who don't know, you know, uh, my baby, you know, she, 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 she got a, she, she, she got a little black eye and, uh, that's not his daughter. His car got dinged up. Okay. And, uh, she's back better than ever. And they're going to do even more to it next week. And, um, and so how many of you hate it when you, when, when you get in a car accident, how many of you hate it when it's not your fault? How many of you hate driving a compact car? Come on now. <laughs> Jesus, take the wheel. Yeah, you knew that was coming in a sermon someday, sooner or later. There it is. It's like Chris Salter when he said he couldn't do minivans. I don't do compacts. I've got roller skates bigger than an Altima. Amen? Just kidding. You don't want to see me on roller skates. But Jeff, on the other hand, can shoot the duck like nobody's business. Limbo king over here. And so, how many of you know vehicles speak of ministries? What? When I got there... And, and, and instantly, just the way my eye is, in fact, uh, Bob Weiner was here with us on Friday, just kind of looking at what we're doing. And, and so we were walking around with Dee and uh, Amy, and I would see something, and Bob would see something. And, and so, so Dee was like, man, we got to get you guys, like, apart. Like, he was seeing things that needed to be done. I was seeing things. And, and, and Bob told Dee, he said, no, he said, that's the apostolic. He said, it's not seeing what's wrong, it's seeing what can be done to be better. Amen? And so as soon as I pulled in... Oh, yeah, that's the apostolic. I had no idea. There. As soon as D brought me to the uh, the car, I look over and all of a sudden I see the fenders actually hanging over the bumper about an inch. It's like that ain't gonna do. You know, I'm seeing I'm seeing things that are out of alignment. How many of you know some things that can be just out of alignment in a small way, but it makes a big difference. And see, once you see something that just could be better, sometimes that's all you can see. Anybody with me? Is anybody else? First step's admitting your OCD. Right now. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Listen, I love, come on. I learned from the best. Nana can shine the bronze right off a doorknob. Bam. The uh, but I, I pulled in and I said, wait a minute. I said, the Lord's doing something and my truck's not done yet. And, and I didn't even say anything to the people inside, but I did notice something. There was this hanging on my mirror. It was my claim check. And there's actually the, the other claim check fell off this morning as I was getting out of the car. It's in my, um, it's in my cup holder. And uh, I had the name of the person who had checked me in. Her name was Mary. It had my name and then it had some other numbers. But 121 really spoke to me. Why? Because uh, eleven, eleven. Because eleven, eleven. What? See, eleven times eleven is one hundred and twenty-one. And see, oftentimes the Lord will speak to us through whatever we. Uh, I don't want. Mm, God will get His word to you and through you by whatever means necessary. Uh, yeah, God speaks through the Bible. That's the only place I know with any certainty whatsoever that God has spoken. Jesus said of his disciples, the one who hears you hears me. One who receives you receives me. The one who rejects you rejects me. So where do I go to find the words of Christ? Well, from the ones he sent. Now that I'm thinking about it, I think I'm going to end up having to do a twin spin for uh, hour number two. I'm going to play last Sunday's sermon, too, the uh, sermon for uh, Easter 7. Yeah, I'm going to have to play that as well as Pentecost in hour number two. Boy, this is weird. When I saw it, Steve, I said 121 gigawatts. Blessed God, we've got more than enough. Y'all remember Back to the Future? Come on, the flux capacitor. And so all of a sudden, the Lord just started speaking to me because... It's 1.21 gigawatts. Yeah. 
The number 1111 means a couple different things. Isaiah 1111 means it's a, it's second chances. It's all about the people of Israel being brought back. You're literally, no joke, he's trying to find the spiritual significance of the claim check for his car after getting it back from the body shop. Land that God had promised and appointed them to be. And how many of you know, sometimes we need a second chance. One of the things I love that Jeff brought up at our strategic planning meeting on Thursday, he said, we are a house of second chances. We're a house of people who have lived imperfect lives, but worship a perfect God. And the more we get to know him, the more we become like him in the process. Amen. But 1111, John 1111 is where I want to begin today. Because I want to tell you, God... Because you've got a claim check, John 1111. What is going on here? Here's what it says, John 1111. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. That's what John 1111 says. What does that have to do with your car? Releasing multiplication, not just addition. I do have to back that up. Really? So, so God, God is releasing multiplication and not just addition. Wow. Yeah, let me back that up. Here it is again. To know him, the more we become like him in the process. Amen? But 11.11, John 11.11 is where I want to begin today. Because I want to tell you God is releasing multiplication, not just addition. <laughs> What about division and subtraction, you know? God is releasing. Say it with me. When I give, um, it's not a subtraction. It's multiplication. But what you were happy with in times past in terms of addition, God is going to release by multiplication in this season. Have you been to the Chuck Pierce School of Gibberish? What was that? Because most of the time when we see a number like 22, 11 plus 11, we're like, King of David, bless God. But then there's times when it's 121 because you don't even know what you're opening most times with the key. How many of you get excited about keys? When keys get talked about, you're a prophetic church. Everybody loves the keys. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally lost here. But what have you done with your keys lately? Um, they're, <laughs> they're right where I put them every time I come into the house. I mean, what are you talking about? What are we doing with our key? Are we opening a door? Are we opening a door? You know, this, one of the first shows that Morningstar filmed with us aired this past week, and it starts off by sharing this vision that God had given us when we first came to Birmingham on 12-12-12, December 12, 2012, about these escrow accounts that were opened between the year 1983 and 1988. That there was a season of prophetic grace that was partnered with first season, but discouragement, disappointment, and division in the body had got in that brought a delay not a detour, but a delay to what God wanted to do. But those escrow accounts are about to be re-released with interest. And um, You're not talking physical escrow accounts, are you? You're talking spiritual, aren't you? Okay. Listen, heaven has great interest rates, better than any CD. Escrow accounts be re-released with interest, keys being given, doors being opened, and promises being occupied. And so if you have a key, it's for a door. Or if you have a key, it's to get that vehicle, that instrument started. And for the now, do you need to see the key master in order to get a key? I'm curious. If you hear a couple weeks ago, I talked about the, the replacement car that we had gotten was a Nissan Rogue. And of course, a Rogue is somebody who does something in an unconventional way. That's us. 
out of the. Oh yeah, see, because you know his rental car was a Nissan Rogue. That just says everything. You know, God is really talking through that. No, really, actually, God is not speaking through any of that. What is going on here? I love Steve found that definition. But then also, rogue as a verb means to remove the inferior or defective plants from a crop. It's a harvest implementation that removes the tear from your wheat. And so the Lord was saying, yeah, you took a shot to your headlight and to your fender. And headlight speaks of illumination is my left side, which speaks of ministry. So headlight speaks of, you know, eliminating, you know, what is going on here? So notice here, you know, from a guy who's uh, celebrating Pentecost twice because God has told him to have a double Pentecost, that um, you know, apparently God is speaking through all kinds of things, but not God's word in context. No, we don't do that anymore. No, it's, you know, talking through his, you know, car claim ticket. It's God's talking through... You know, the fact that he was even in a collision in, his, in the first place, you know? He said, but not only am I going to restore it better than it was, and it already is, and it's getting ready to go back in tomorrow to get some finishing touches on them. Them saying, this is what they said when, they, when I pulled it. They said, we can't even let you leave in this. We got to do some more, more to it. Because they, they saw streaks, things that, that most people would have said, oh, that's okay. Because, see, listen, when you're in the moment of favor, you don't settle for good. You go for God. See, most people would have... Are, are you in the moment of favor? I, apparently, I didn't know I wasn't. Okay. Hey, listen, that's really okay. And, you know, I don't want to inconvenience you. I was like, I think you're onto something. And so the more stuff she saw, I was like, did you see back here? Because there's a little, smear, a little smudge, a little smear. And so all of a sudden, that apostolic grace kicked in. My head thing, thing, we missed a spot. And she's like, we can't let you leave with it. I said, well, I need it tonight to go on this trip. And, and, and they said, well, bring it back on Monday and we'll take care of it. And they said, we want this to be the best it can be for you. And I want to tell you, that is a word to you. The vehicle and the ministry that God has prepared for you, he wants it to be his best, not your best. Uh-huh. So we've just abandoned the, uh, the written word of God. And now it's the word of God that you can hear from your auto repair shop. Wow, that's quite the prophetic word, you know. In other words, what I'm saying is he doesn't want you to limit it, like I told Mick and Marcia, to just what was good enough in times past. We're called to raise the ceiling of our expectancy. We're called to dream bigger. We're called to believe greater. Because your car was in the shop? Called to speak it into existence, which I'm going to talk more about at the 11 o'clock. But 121, I was like, wow, that's amazing. So God, what is it that you're actually tagging we collectively as a vehicle? Because how many know sometimes God will give a word to a leader if it's for an entire house? And so every word that I get... What? Where's that in the Bible? Whether it's from someone that the Lord is speaking to me or someone that God sends with a word, I know it's not just about me, it's about us. And so I saw that in the window and I said, wow, God is giving us a vehicle and a door of awakening. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because. <laughs> what? What do you, I don't even know what to call this because <laughs> he wasn't really actually reading anything into a biblical text. He was literally exegeting all of this circumstances and little details of recent events in his life. I don't even know what to call that. Maybe insanity, but I mean, that's, wow. Yeah, so let's just forget the written word of God. No, we're going to exegete our pastor's trip to the auto shop 
you know, the auto body shop because his car was, you know, dinged up. Right. Yeah. I'm befuddled. Yeah, if you can think of a name to call that, I'd, yeah, I'd love to hear suggestions because I'm kind of at a loss at the moment. But let's go ahead and take our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition, previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're heading to Scotland and, like I said, taking a hard left turn listening to Scott McKenna's Pentecost sermon. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hey, 
I have my rights! You can't do this to people! Oh, but I can. I can't believe that just happened! There's something seriously wrong with all of this. Uh, this is your captain speaking. Do not be alarmed. You are now free to move about the cabin and do as you please. Just whatever you do, don't question my actions or authority. So you're a brick salesperson, huh? Yep. But why on earth would you want to talk about something like that at a time like... Ooh. Yeah. I'm thinking it's time that Mr. High and Mighty got relieved of his duties. It is now time for you all to buckle your seatbelts and hold on tight because we're about to start doing barrel rolls. He's going to do what? <laughs> Remember to always trust your pilots. I know what I'm doing. Oh, I do believe the ground is getting awfully close. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that God is not speaking to you through your claim ticket that you got at your auto body shop. Just a reminder. I just can't believe I have to do that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith 2 into the world. You can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, 
fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank. That's right, you get to pick your rank in our crew. And uh, and here's how this works. You know, We have four ranks. We have uh, Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month, Gunner's Mate $24.95 a month, Master Gunner forty nine ninety five a month and Quartermaster at ninety nine ninety five a month. This is a great way to support us, by the way. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box one three three four four Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code five eight two zero eight. And let me again thank you for your support because we truly, honestly, cannot do what we're doing here without it. And folks, we have plenty of spots available. For this year's 2016 Pirate Christian Radio Conference. Now we're holding it up here up near the Canadian border in uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota. Actually, it's in Oslo, Minnesota. But uh, you know we're, it's, we're a border town here. And uh, we'd love to have you up here for this year's conference. And uh, it's not very expensive to attend. And, uh, you know... Bring the family with you. It'd be a great time. It's uh, the first. It's actually second weekend of August. All the details are on our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Very top, it says you know 2016 PCR conference details about who's speaking, what the theme is, hotel rooms that we have discounts for, you know where to fly into, renting the car, and all that kind of stuff. Um, we'd love to have you out for the conference. So uh, head on over there and join us um, in August. We'd love to spend time with you and uh, love to uh, actually. Have you, you know, ask us questions and uh, hear some good teaching and good lectures from myself, Pastor Jeremy Rohde, Brian Wolfmuller, and another pastor to be announced at a later date. So all of that is just to say, hey, come on, you know, come join us and uh, visit our website and uh, sign up. All the details are there. All right. Now we're going to move along here. And um, like I said at the beginning of the program, this will... You start off kind of innocent enough. I mean, you're kind of going to go, okay. And then I guarantee you, I mean, partway through, it'll take a hard left. But we need to do this right. And since this is kind of an emergent postmodern liberal update, that requires us to do this. of the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Doug Paget. We don't hear much from Doug anymore, but it's nice that he's still doing community service with this amazing orchestra. Now, as you can tell, they've totally freed themselves from the modernist definitions of musical notes and are just being led by the Spirit to play whatever comes to their heart. Very avant-garde, by the way. Oh, oh, this just brings tears to my eyes. Blood and dripping out of my ears. It's so amazing. So uh, we're heading over to the uh, Mayfield Salisbury Parish Church in Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, the Reverend Scott McKenna presiding as we listen to his Pentecost sermon from yesterday titled, Pentecost, A World of Faiths. And, you know, it 
takes a little bit of time for this thing to get going, but <laughs> what once he lays his cards out on the table, holy smokes, that's all I got to say. It, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make Jason Hooper look sane. Is That's the best way I could put it. Here's the Reverend Scott McKenna. They were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire and it sat upon each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. In the most dramatic and magnificent imagery, the writer of Luke and Acts tells the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit. It is the day of Pentecost. I mean, so far so good, right? I mean, with a start like that, you're thinking, what could go wrong? Brace yourselves. Brace yourselves. Set in a house, in a room, in the holy city of Jerusalem, in the story, the Spirit of the living God descended on the followers of Jesus, followers from every nation under heaven. In this rich, imaginative story, rich, imaginative, okay, scripture, the crowd gathered from every corner of the known world and heard the Galileans speak, not in the dialect of Galilee, but each in his or her own native tongue, in the languages of the world, from regions throughout Judea, Asia, Egypt, and Rome. Those who witnessed this cacophonous sound asked, How hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Imagine for a moment, if you will, you seated there in that house, in that room, feeling that mighty blast on your face, your whole vision filled with flames of the Spirit, and your heart exhilarated by the energy of the Eternal. This is how to use Scripture. Place yourself in that room. No, 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 no. you you, you got to be careful here. That's what Stephen Furtick would have you think. Feel it. Experience it. What are we to make of this mind-blowing narrative? In the Orthodox tradition, the readings for today are taken from the book of Numbers and the book of Ezekiel. In Numbers, we read that the Lord came down in a cloud a symbol of mystery and hiddenness, took the spirit of Moses and gave it to each of the 70 elders, the leaders of Israel. In Ezekiel, the Lord said, A new heart will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. 
The tradition of the East, like that of the Roman Catholic Church, is very mindful of the wisdom of the past, of the saints and the mystics. In the Orthodox tradition, Saint Seraphim of Sarov said that the goal of the Christian life is the acquisition of the Holy Spirit. How can that be the goal of the Christian life when the Christian receives the Holy Spirit when they are brought to faith in Christ? That doesn't make any sense. That seems backwards to me. What are we to make of the story of Pentecost as told in the book of Acts? Well, it's historical narrative. Let's believe it. How's that? If we lay aside for a moment the almost magical imagery of mythology, the tongues of fire, the mighty rushing wind, the crucial point of the narrative is that people from every nation under heaven, every corner and kingdom of the earth, heard the Spirit speak in their own languages. The New Testament narrative is a sequel to the Old Testament story in the book of Genesis. The t- uh, sequel? Uh, they, they are, it is related, by the way. He's talking about the story from Genesis 11 of the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel. In that ancient Old Testament story, we hear that the whole world spoke one language, was of one speech, and that together, the people's of the earth decided to build a tower that would reach to the heavens. On hearing of this scheme, the Lord scattered the people and confounded their language that they did not understand one another's speech. In the word, in the myth, the word Babel means mixed up. Uh, it's not a myth, it's a historical narrative. God mixed up their language. So the New Testament story is a sequel to this ancient Old Testament story. Definitely is connected because it's a reversing of Babel, if you would. The story of Babel is sometimes understood as a myth in which the ancients explained the existence of many nations on earth with many different languages. Uh, No, it's actually revealed, uh, it's revelation found in the book of Genesis, where God explains to us, not the ancients, unless you're talking about the Ancient of Days, where God explains to us the origin of all of the different languages on the earth. In other words, they said, God punished humanity for building a tower that would reach the heavens, split everyone up, and created different languages. Well, let's take a look at the text. I mean, it's not too tough to do. Genesis chapter 11 Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Genesis 11, by the way, uh, this is, uh, you know, just two chapters over from Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, you have the conclusion of the flood. What happened during the flood? All of humanity, except for the family of Noah, perished in the global flood, the flood of Noah. And so, at this point, uh, chapter 10, by the way, if if you want to look at it, 
Um, it gives the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons who were born to them to him after the, uh, the sons were born to them after the flood. So it gives the uh, the genealogical information of the sons of Japheth, the sons of Ham, and the uh, and the sons of Shem. And uh, so he, here's kind of the idea here. Um, Adam, not at Adam, but Noah and his wife and his family come off the ark all speaking the same language. Yeah, they do. Then you get their, you know, in chapter 10, you get the story of all of their descendants. And what language do you think they all spoke? The same language, which is why when we get to Genesis 11, we get to now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Right, because humanity had been brought down to just one family, and then that family reproduced and all their children were speaking the same language as their parents and their grandparents and stuff, right? That's kind of how that works. I mean, you know, think about like China, okay? Much older than the United States of America. And they speak Chinese now. I mean, or, you know, variant, there's different variants in dialects. You know, for, for instance, Cantonese, all right? Some people speak Cantonese. And you know what their family members spoke before they spoke Cantonese? They spoke Cantonese. And you know what they spoke before they spoke Cantonese? They spoke Cantonese, right? Yeah, that's how that works. That's why people in China still speak Chinese or Cantonese, right? Now, the whole earth had one language, the same words, and as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, uh, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. By the way, the Lord actually, at the end of the flood, told them to go and disperse and, you know, manage the earth. So they were absolutely defying a a direct order given to Noah's descendants by the Lord himself. Verse 5, So the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have one language. And this is the on, only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, the name of it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from uh, and from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So there it is. There's the historical narrative as revealed by God the Holy Spirit in the book of Genesis. This is revelation. This is not a myth. So let's see now what Scott McKenna is going to do. That's one interpretation of the myth. On the face of it, the story could mean just that. However... Yeah, on the face of it. He's got a deeper meaning than what's on the face. Okay. The existence of many nations with many different languages is established earlier in the book of Genesis. Uh, where? In chapter 10. No, it's not. There is no mention of other languages in chapter 10. None whatsoever. There's the accounts of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the children that were born to them and their children after the flood. No mention of any other languages. Or the story of Babel. 
When the story of Babel begins at chapter 11, when the whole world spoke with one language. Right. That's exactly correct. You know why they were speaking with one language? Because it's like what I said. The whole earth was, uh, the human population was brought down to one family. Uh huh. This was not the natural state, but one that was imposed. Really? So somebody imposed one language on humanity. Yeah, see, they were, they were speaking all kinds of different languages in chapter 10. And then, you know, chapter 11 comes along and somebody imposed one language on them. There isn't a single text that says that. The story of the Tower of Babel is a story about the imposition of one language, one speech. Uh, no text talks about one language being imposed on people. By one of the world's first empires. In the 9th century BC, there is evidence of the Assyrian Empire imposing one speech upon the totality of all people. Um, the Assyrian Empire doesn't exist at the time of Genesis 11. What are you talking about? In the 8th century BC, again the Assyrian Empire required that its people speak in a single voice. The Assyrian Empire asserted its supremacy by insisting that its language be the only language used by the nations and populations which they had defeated. Um, yeah, by the time Assyria came around, it was long after Genesis 11, and uh, there were all kinds of languages by then. Yeah, wow, he, he, I mean, he just makes assertions up now. Babel is a critique of imperialism. <laughs> Spoken like a true postmodern. The big enemy of humanity, according to the postmoderns, is imperialism. So he's turned... Genesis 11 into a critique of imperialism without any textual evidence to justify such an interpretation. In the myth, when the Lord scatters the people and causes them to speak different languages, God is returning humanity to its natural and right state. Um, what? So the natural and right state of humanity is confused languages. What? are you talking about? It is through the rich colors of diversity that God is honored through the multivarious nations, tribes, languages, cultures, and people. God likes color. Yeah, so apparently God came to set us all free. And you know, in Genesis 11, by giving us our natural state back, the state of all kinds of different languages. Ah, oh, unbelievable. The New Testament story of Pentecost, the myth of the coming of the Holy Spirit, portrays the church as the embodiment of diversity and difference. <laughs> oh, man, this is so bad. Okay, so the story of Pentecost is really all about how God loves cultural diversity. Wow. Rainbow people in whom the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, is alive and flourishes. In the story of Pentecost, 
The tongues of fire sat on each one of them, it says, descending separately on each one. In his letter to the Romans, St. Paul writes of the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, The Spirit of truth dwells with you and shall be in you. In the church, the Spirit is poured out on all God's people, not the ordained ministers only, but on every single person. Within the tradition of the East, the celebration of the Eucharist, the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the wine is a symbol of perpetual Pentecost, the weekly outpouring of the Spirit. What? Um, again, uh, the Lord's Supper is not a picture of Pentecost. It's a picture of Christ's death. Yeah, Sunday, the Lord's Day, is a mini Easter. You know, we're celebrating the death and resurrection of Christ. Strange. Same error, totally different directions. And you know what uh, Jason Hooper and uh, Scott McKenna have in common? Mm-hmm. They're both enthusiasts. They are not bound by the written word of God. No, they've got a better word than the written word. Yeah, they each have different words to tell us than what the words of Scripture say. Earlier this week, we had the kirking of the Scottish Parliament at St. Giles Cathedral. It was a deep and real joy to see the involvement of representatives from other world faiths take part in the service of worship. I am not sure what to make of a blessing offered by the Humanist Society in the context of public worship, but I'm just going to park that right now. Among the world's great religions, there are different perspectives, in some cases quite pronounced differences. However, in our scriptures... God has never required the whole world to be of one faith. Um, You are aware of the first commandment. You will have no other gods before me. Yeah. um, (laughs) Yeah, then you have the whole book of Acts, which you are apparently reading from, where the apostles go out, especially the apostle Paul and Barnabas, and they go into pagan towns and call people to abandoned belief in their vain idols and turn to a true and living God. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm going to put a link with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith uh, with my lecture from Norway on Solus Christus. Yeah, on Solus Christus. I think you will find that very helpful uh, as a counter-refutation to what it is that uh, Scott McKenna is saying here. Yeah, you should listen to that. But we continue... God is encountered through different faiths along different paths. There is not a single faith or within Christianity not a single tradition or denomination which is the sole repository of truth. Rather than focus on what divides us, it is absolutely right that we celebrate our commonality and value the treasures we share. And what commonality do I have with Muslims? And what treasures do we share in common? I'm a little concerned by your your thinking here. 
and your interpretation of the events of Pentecost. As we look to the third millennium of Christianity, what does it mean to be a Pentecostal church, a church of the Spirit? What does it mean to live in the spirit of the Nazarene? You know, it's weird. On the day of Pentecost, you have that great sermon preached by the Apostle Peter. And his hearers were cut to the quick, and they said, What shall we do, brothers? And he said, Repent, every one of you, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So what he says, um, yeah, it seems that Peter on Pentecost was preaching that one true faith stuff that you seem to be denying, which is weird. We continue. He has been described as the greatest living theologian. The Swiss-born Roman Catholic Hans Kuhn sets out four conditions. Oh, no. If the church is to have a future in the third millennium. Yeah, Roman Catholic Hans Kuhn gets to decide how the church will survive. I think Jesus said to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations, um, starting at Jerusalem. That would include, you know, 21st century Scotland, 21st century America, 21st century, you know, pretty much everywhere. Yeah. So, yeah, the message hasn't changed. He said, oh, in the the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. So, yeah, the church is to do and teach the same things as it's taught from the beginning, because Jesus said so. Firstly, the churches must not turn back and fall in love with their own history either in the Middle Ages or the Reformation. The church must live in the present, and the theologies of yesterday, applied uncritically today, will serve only to weaken the church further. Oh, yeah. If you you want to go back to historic, biblical, orthodox Christianity and apply that today, it'll only weaken the church. No, that's that's a lie from the devil. We must engage with the world as it is now. Yeah, the world is as it is now, just like it was then. And the world has full of sinners who need to be brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Secondly, the church must not be patriarchal with exclusively male language and predetermined gender roles. Yeah, like the ones outlined in Scripture. Yeah, again, God's Word actually makes it clear. Women are not to hold the pastoral office. And that's a direct revelation from God the Holy Spirit. doesn't change, you know. But be a church of partnership in which women are accepted in all church ministries. We may add acceptance, too, of homosexual and bisexual people in all church ministries. Yeah, Kuhn didn't say that. McKenna did. Oh, we got to we got to ha- now include impenitent sexual sinners into our uh, pulpits. Got it? Right? Yeah, it says nowhere in the Bible. Thirdly, the church must not be narrowly confessional or succumb to confessional exclusiveness or refuse communion to other Christians of, den- of different denominations. But rather, he said, be an ecumenically open church 
which practices ecumenism by mutual recognition of... Yeah, this won't lead to a one-world religion, will it? Wow. ...histories, the abolition of all excommunications, and complete Eucharistic fellowship. Fourthly, the Church must not be Eurocentric or claim superiority over other world religions. Beyond these four conditions, signs of the Spirit, I suppose, beyond these four conditions, Kuhn calls... Yeah, so there's the signs of the Spirit, folks. Yeah, yeah women pastors, impenitent homosexuals, uh, radical ecumenism, you know, an abandonment of historic Orthodox biblical or, you know, Christianity... Those are apparently this, now the new signs of the Spirit. Wow! The Church to play its part in creating a sustained dialogue and a truly deeper understanding of people, between peoples, of different language, culture, and religion. He says the Church is represented on every continent, and so it's well placed to help facilitate this dialogue and deepen this understanding. Calling for a global ethic, Kung says that human rights are not the exclusive preserve of the West, but can equally be found in Chinese history. We have much to share with them. In many ways, he says, Asians welcome much of what the West does and has to offer. But, says Kung, if we understood more deeply we would appreciate the importance Asians attach to families, intensive education, frugality, and unpretentiousness, and why, therefore, unlimited individualism and decadence are abhorrent. Between civilizations, we need to understand more deeply and truly honor the other. The story of Pentecost is not some bizarre myth about fiery tongues and fun. Yeah, but what you're saying is it is a bizarre myth that has no anchoring in at the actual words and revelation of the Holy Spirit found in Scripture. This rushing wind, but about the flourishing of humanity. This is God's dream. Uh-huh. You, you, this is your dream, and you're imposing it on God. Amen. Done. All right, so you get the idea there. That was a complete theological train wreck once we got to him explaining the significance of what Pentecost was, flat-out lying about the fact there were multiple languages uh, on the earth right after the flood, and then you know, and then the one one language was imposed by a, a wicked empire. And then God came and freed them. <laughs> oh, man, you just can't make this stuff up. Well, I mean, do people not know how to read? That's kind of the best way I can put it. So, I mean, I this is, wow. You know, Christians are making no effort whatsoever to even pay attention to what the biblical text says. And somebody tells them the exact opposite of what a text says. And they'll sit there and go, well, that's true. No, it's not. Open up the Bible, read it. You'll see that guy was just flat out lying to you. Wow. All right. Let's go ahead and take our second break. And we'll... 
come back, we'll explain what we're going to do. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break, when we come back, we're going to end off today with a couple of my sermons from Kongsvinger just to balance this out. Stay tuned, don't want to miss them, we'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end off with two... Let's just say better sermons. I want to do a little comparative work. And the last two Sundays that I preached, the texts actually work together. The messages kind of dovetail, if you would. Yeah, Holy Spirit, pun intended. But let's do this right.
the Bad, the Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons comes to us via Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, Oslo, Minnesota. Pastor Chris Rosebro presiding. The first sermon is titled, Who Sent You? That's right, Who Sent You? And it's based upon the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. The uh, sermon after that is the sermon for uh, Pentecost Sunday, and the name of that sermon is The Holy Spirit Will Teach You All Things, and it's based on the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 23 through 31. Now, I will read the Gospel text for each of the sermons that uh, we will be playing, and here's the idea. The two work together and just compare who's preaching what the Holy Spirit's really all about and does. That's kind of the best question I can have you ask. And uh, we'll go from there. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's the first sermon, Who Sent You? The Holy Gospel according to St. John, chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have Uh, loved me may be in them, and I in them. In the name of Jesus. All right, tough text. See if we can dig into this one. Jesus says in the gospel text today, he's praying. This is his high priestly prayer. This prayer takes place on the night that Jesus is betrayed. It's Thursday evening, hours away from Jesus' arrest. And he's praying. Interesting to note who he's praying for and what he says. Here's what he says in this prayer. I do not ask for these only, talking about his disciples, who would become the apostles. It says this, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, Jesus here is praying for me. He's praying for you. Did you see that? And he's praying this that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, real quick, we got to do a little theological work here. We'll do a kind of a planned bunny trail. We'll circle back and look at this prayer a little bit more. But this next section, we'll title this Everything You Didn't Know That You Needed to Know About Apostles. All right, It's kind of important. I, I apologize for the complexity but I think you'll see the importance of it as we unfold today. Apostles. 
Now, I don't know if you know this, but there are people nowadays claiming to be apostles. All right? I was reading a book by a gentleman by the name of C. Peter Wagner. I'm actually writing a, 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 a theological paper on apostles right now. And C. Peter Wagner is one of these guys who claims that apostles have been restored to the earth. And he literally makes the claim, no joke, that it is sinful if, uh, if you are a Christian leader if you have not submitted yourself to the authority of your local apostle. So I did some research, and our local apostle is a woman who, well, lives in Devil's Lake. All right? Well, let it be known, I have not submitted to her. All right? And I have no intention of doing so. And I think it's kind of ironic, well, not really so, that she lives at Devil's Lake. But, <clears throat> so, just so you know, I will not be submitting to her for good reason. All right? When we look in the Bible, we see the word apostle appearing several times. In fact, many times in the New Testament. And it's important for us to understand what is meant by an apostle. We think, when we think apostle, we generally think, well, Peter, James, John, Paul, right? These guys are apostles. Well, yes, indeed they are. But then you also have other people who are outside of that circle who are also called apostles. And we think, well, what's with that? Well, Back in the day, apostle was a very commonly used term. And it references in our New Testament people who, well, don't have an extraordinary status as well as those who have an extraordinary status. And it all comes down to the question of who sent you? Who sent you? So think of it this way. The word apostle in Greek is apostolos. Pretty simple, right? Okay. It's, in fact, you can say the word apostle in English is just kind of a transliteration of the Greek, which makes it very helpful. But always the question comes up is, what does it mean? Well, an apostle is a messenger, a delegate, an envoy. So if you were to show up, if you lived in the ancient world and show up at somebody's door and say, hello, I'm apostle so-and-so, they would ask you, well, who sent you? Because an apostle is one who's speaking on behalf of another person. Right, And so when we look at the apostles, you know, the twelve, right? well, those are ones who are sent by Christ. The rest, well, they're sent by people. All right? Let me kind of explain this. We'll do a little bit of a biblical survey here. We'll look first at kind of like the ordinary apostles, ordinary kind. If you want to look on 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, the apostle Paul says this. He says, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. You'll notice that Titus has an entire epistle written to him that we have, right? And he says, as for our brothers, they are, and here's how the ESV translate it, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Well, the Greek there for messengers is apostolos. It's actually the plural apostoloi, right? So it says they're messengers, they're apostles. But who sent them? Well, the churches sent them, not Christ. So in other words, Titus and these other apostles who are mentioned here are of the ordinary type. Right? Another example of this is found in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you, this is verse 25, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your apostle and minister to my need. Now, he was sent by the church at Philippi to be a, one who helps the needs of Paul. But again, that's the ordinary kind of apostle, right? There's also the extraordinary type. And the extraordinary types are those, 
Well, the one who sent them is none other than Jesus himself. Let me give you an example of this that we have in Scripture. We'll give you kind of two places to look. If you remember Paul's letter to the Galatians, the churches in Galatia, where the heresy of Judaizing had taken root, and the Judaizers came in and said, that apostle Paul, man, he's just an apostle. He's not really an apostle. He's not like Peter, James, and John. That apostle Paul, well, you remember he was murdering Christians. He's really not like the other apostles, right? So Paul begins his letter to the churches in Galatia with this sentence, Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Who sent Paul? Jesus did. Right? Who sent Titus? Well, the church sent Titus. You see the difference? Now, Paul actually makes these distinctions quite clear in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 10. And we'll kind of take a look at this real quick and note something important. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 10, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. A little bit of a note here, all right? Remember in our first reading from the book of Acts, Matthias is chosen to fill the vacant office, you know, left vacant by Judas, right? How many of Jesus' 12 did Jesus appear to after his resurrection? Well, if you do the math, Judas is dead, 11. But notice it says here that, well, Jesus appeared to the 12. Who's number 12? Answer, Matthias. Although we don't hear of him ever again in Scripture, except in Acts chapter 1, when Paul writes this in the year 50 A.D., he considers Matthias to be one of the 12. So it's fascinating to note that. So Jesus appeared to Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then all the other apostles. No, other apostles would be the ordinary kind, not the 12. And last of all, as to one untimely born, well, Jesus appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. So notice, Paul makes these distinctions regarding ordinary apostles versus, well, those apostles sent by Christ himself. Now, you're thinking, wait a second here, Pastor Roseboro, I know how to do math. And again, I must reiterate, math is evil. Okay, I know how to do math, and if you add up the names of the 12 apostles and you throw Paul at the end, then you get 13 names. Yeah, I know, it's kind of weird how that works, isn't it? When you count up the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, how many names do you have? 13. How is that possible? Well, remember Joseph? Joseph was split into two tribes, the half-tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. And so it's kind of a weird thing that happens here. In the Old Testament, there's 12 tribes, 13 names. In the New Testament, there's 12 apostles and 13 names. Weird how that works. But that's how that works. Because there are 13 that Christ sent. Interesting to note that, okay? So, all of that, let's look again at our first reading from Acts 15. Kind of note something important here about apostles. 
And then we'll see the important stuff that Jesus gets to. Acts, 15, Acts 1, verse 15, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. Quick note here, Jesus did not leave a megachurch. It's, kind of, it's actually important to note that. Jesus, when it came to discipleship, was about quality. Quantity, well, not very impressive by any standards, right? Jesus spends three years traipsing about the Judean countryside, preaching, teaching, healing people, and at the very end, the total number of believers in Him, 120? Wow. Right? So don't let a small church fool you. Right? All right, he says this. So Peter stands up, he says, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. No, that's right. David prophesied about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Note here, there were some people who were actually baptized by Judas. Now this man acquired a field with a reward of his wickedness. That would be the 30 pieces of silver that were given to him to betray Christ. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his bowels gushed out. And all the junior high kids said, Ooh. So it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akadalma, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his... And the Greek word is actually here in the ESV correctly translated also from the Hebrew. Let another take his office. Yes, there are offices in Christ's church. Right? So we had a vacant office and it had to be filled. So one of the men who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So, two qualifications for the apostleship that had to be filled, that vacant office. Somebody who was there, eyewitness, earwitness to Jesus' preaching, teaching ministry from the time of his baptism till his resurrection. They have to be there for the whole time, and be a witness to the resurrection. But the third qualification, by the way, is not specifically mentioned by name, but it's right there. This has to be one whom Christ has chosen. And we read, So they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justice, and Matthias. So they prayed, and they said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas had turned aside to go to his own place. So they pray, believing that Jesus is going to choose one of these two men to fill the vacant office. How are they so confident? Well, there's a prophecy regarding Judas in the Psalms. They know that this is what they must do. Since Jesus has now ascended to heaven, their prayers go to him. They know that he hears them, and he's going to answer by way of casting lots. You can say, throwing the dice. So they threw the dice. (laughs) Comes up Matthias. Right? Jesus chooses Matthias through the casting of lots. And even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 recognizes that Matthias is one of the twelve. Right? 
chosen by Christ himself. Strange way to be chosen, yet that's how it worked. The cast lots fell on Matthias. He was now numbered with the 11 apostles, now filling out the number 12. But there were 13 names. I know it's weird how that works, right? So why is this important? I mean, everything you ever needed to know that you didn't know that you needed to know about apostles, right? Well, why is this important? Well, let's come back now. We'll do a little bit of work here. In John chapter 10, Jesus tells the parable of the sheep where he says, my sheep hear my voice, right? My sheep hear my voice. I'm the good shepherd. And he says that his sheep hear his voice. Well, the question is, have any of you actually heard Jesus's audible voice? Any of you had Starbucks with Jesus, you know? No? Every time I invite him to Starbucks, he just never shows up, right? None of you have. Well, how then are you to hear the voice of Jesus if you're one of his sheep? It's a decent question, is it not? Now, don't get stumped on this. The answer is through the ones he sent, his apostles. Jesus says in John 13, 20, Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Okay, so... How do we receive the ones Jesus sent? I'll explain a little bit more. Luke 10, 16 says this of the disciples. The one who hears you, you disciples of mine, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Ah, now this is starting to get important, right? The way you hear the voice of Jesus is not him whispering in your ear, the still small voice that the prophet heard, right? No. The way you hear the voice of Jesus is through the ones he sent. The ones who hears the apostles hears Jesus. The ones who hear Jesus hears the Father. See how it goes all the way up the chain of command, even within the Trinity. And so now we come back to our text from the Gospel of John. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. How? Through their word. Now, a little bit of a note here. We don't think this way. I'm reading from the Gospel of John. Who wrote this? John did. John was one of the guys Jesus sent. And so I'm hearing, and you are hearing, Jesus' exact prayer through what John is writing. In other words, if you really want to get technical, you know who's discipling you today? John is. You can't see him, but he's here today discipling you through the gospel that he wrote. Because he's one of the guys that Jesus sent. You receive Him by receiving the words that He gives regarding Jesus. You hear Jesus through Him. And by hearing Jesus through Him, you also are hearing none other than God the Father as well. Fascinating how that all works. Which, by the way, all then plays into this wonderful doctrine that we Lutherans like to, you know, to trumpet, and that is sola scriptura. Where else can you go to hear Jesus' voice? To hear His words? You can go no other place than to the apostolic teaching in your New Testament, right? Jesus sends the prophets of the Old Testament to tell everyone he's coming. 
He sends the apostles, the ones He sent, to tell us that He has come and to tell us what He has done for us. And now, with all of this, we see that, what is it that John is telling us? Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for me. Let's pay attention to what Jesus prays for us. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is an important prayer. And why? Why? Because sin separates us from God. But sin also separates us from each other. Paul writes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's me and that's you. But not only do we fall short of the glory of God, sin divides us, separates us from each other. I mean, if you want an example of that, just look how well politics is a unifying factor in the United States. Right? We all know what it's like come Thanksgiving when this relative's a Democrat and that one's a Republican. And the rule is not being enforced that says no politics, no religion at the Thanksgiving table. We've all been there. We've all experienced it. Did you feel united after that experience or divided? Right? And politics is just one way in which we are divided from each other. Look at the strained relationships that occur when people decide to chase after sin. Look at the angst that it creates in godly parents. Look at, the, look at your own sin and how it's strained relationships that you've had over the years of your life. Friendships literally destroyed. Family relationships totally strained. All of this is a result of sin. But notice what Jesus' prayer is for us. It's that we be one, that we be united. I often wonder if hell itself involves complete separation, not only from God, we know that, but also from others. I wonder if the sufferings of hell are experienced in complete seclusion and isolation from others who are also in hell. That would make sense. It would make sense. Because I get the feeling that as people go from bad to worse in their sufferings in hell, they wouldn't even be able to get along with another soul there. So hell itself has to be so wide that everybody has their own space and nobody bumps into each other. Totally isolating. But see, the cross, the forgiveness of sins, reunites us with God. And because of mercy and forgiveness, it makes it possible for us, even in this life, to begin the experiencing the unity and oneness that we will experience on that great day when Christ returns in glory and we become inhabitants of the new Jerusalem. And on that day, everybody will be a Lutheran. So, <laughs> just thought I'd put that in there. Yeah. So Jesus continues to pray, and this is fascinating. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, that's us, that's us, listen to this, that they may be with me where I am. In this prayer, Jesus says He desires that you be with Him. And He says this, 
I want them to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. In other words, Jesus wills. He desires for you and for me to be with him. He loves us and he wants us to see him in his glory. If you think about that, that's some really good news. And the reason why is because when we sin, when we screw up, when we do that thing we know we ought not to do, what ends up happening? You feel guilty. You feel the twinges of God's wrath, maybe even a little bit more than that. And you should. Because the law says guilty, guilty, guilty. cannot save you. It condemns you. And you feel that condemnation when your conscience bears witness that what you've done is wrong. And as a result of that, you are tempted to say, God ain't going to be happy when I, He sees me. Jesus is not going to have any kind words for me when I stand before Him. But here Jesus prays for you and He says that He desires for you to be where He is. He desires for you to see His glory. And that is only possible because Christ has gone to the cross. And all of your sins have been washed away. He continues, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know You, I know You, and these know that You have sent Me. Jesus is sent by the Father and He sends His apostles. I make known to them Your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which You have loved Me may be in them and I in them. Glimpses of the kingdom to come is the unity of the saints. No more bickering. No more fighting. No more separating. What exactly is the love with which Jesus loved us, by the way? How did Jesus love us? Well, Jesus' apostles, his ones that he sent, tell us that Christ went to the cross. The question is, why did he go to the cross? One of the answers given by those he sent is this, that we were all born in slavery to sin, slavery to death, slavery to the devil, and incapable of freeing ourselves. And make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, sin is slavery. It is not freedom. And you know this experientially. You know this. Paul says in Galatians 4, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. What is redemption? What is it? Very important word, by the way. You know, when I was a kid, we used to redeem blue chip stamps. Does anyone remember those? You can redeem them for like Chinese-made merchandise. But, <laughs> right? And at the time, that was not a good thing. You're just saying that those things would break pretty quick. Redemption here is not talking about the thing that we talk about like when we talk about blue chip stamps. Redemption is a slave term. A slave term. You have to go back to the 19th century. All right? All of us were born, if you would, Africans. But not Africans born in Africa. We were born or hauled off to America. Chains on our hands and our feet big shackle on our necks. Good, 
scars on our backs from the crack of the whip. Incapable of saving ourselves, of freeing ourselves, Christ comes into our situation and says, I'll buy that one. And that one's you. But it's more than that. Because God is not, and Christ is not, the kind of person that says, I'll just be a kinder master to you. I won't beat you as much. Instead, not only does He purchase you, He redeems you. And the redemption here is not the price of paying for a slave. It's the price of paying for that slave's freedom. And having then been set free, He says, come to My home. Come to My home. He feeds you. He clothes you. Gives you your own room. And then writes you into the will. And He always refers to you as son or daughter. And never treats you any different than any of his biological children because you are now his son or daughter. That's what redemption is. Right? So when we talk about slavery and freedom, let's keep our categories right. Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave. You're not. You are not a slave. You are a son and a daughter. And if a child of God, then you are an heir through God. This is good news. Now, Paul then in chapter 5 gives us a very stern warning. And here's what he says. Starting at verse 13. You were called to freedom. You were called to freedom, brothers. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul is literally saying here, you've been set free. You've been redeemed. You've been adopted. You're in the will. Don't go back to slavery. That's what he's saying. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what freedom looks like. And what is sin? It's serving yourself to the detriment of your own neighbor. It's the ultimate selfishness. Paul says, walk by the Spirit then, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And then he says this, Now the works of the flesh, they are self-evident. And here they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. And by the way, sexual immorality, pretty simple. You want to just boil it down? Anything other than sexual relations between a man and a woman in marriage is sexual immorality. Enmity, strife, these are often caused by a breaking of the Eighth Commandment, lying and gossiping against our neighbor. Divisions, rivalries, anger, dissensions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. That's slavery. That's not freedom. And Paul says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
We even heard this in in the book of Revelation today. We heard from Revelation 22. Christ Himself reiterates this fact. And why is it? Because we've been set free. Why would we live as slaves anymore? Why? That doesn't make sense. So this is why we warn people to repent and to be forgiven and walk in true repentance. To walk in freedom. So you, brothers and sisters, you have been purchased off the slave block. Your chains have been removed from your hands, your feet, and your neck. You've been purchased by God Himself, redeemed, written into the will, and He now calls you son and daughter. You are the children of God, and you are heirs of the coming kingdom. All of this is yours now. This is the result, by the way, of the message preached to you by the ones whom Jesus sent. Today you have heard John preach. You have heard Paul preach. And in hearing Paul and John, you have heard Christ. By hearing Christ, you have heard the Father. You have heard of your sin. You've heard of slavery. And you've heard of Christ's redemption and setting you free and adopting you. And you also have heard stern warning to continue to walk in freedom and no longer live as slaves. That we do not miss out on the inheritance in that glorious new Jerusalem that is coming down. And yet there are some who have squandered this gift by refusing to live as free, instead, returning back to Egypt and living as slaves. Let us pray that Christ continues to sustain us in the faith and the gifts that he has given us so that we will not, well, walk away from such a great inheritance only to be slaves again. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Here's the next sermon entitled, The Holy Spirit Will Teach You All Things. Here we go. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, chapter 14, verses 23 through 31. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. But And let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, that you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. In the name of Jesus. All right, so here's our primary text. From our gospel text today, John fourteen twenty six, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Notice the emphasis. You, your, you. 
Now, today's Pentecost Sunday, and if I had a dollar for every time I've heard that we Lutherans have a defective, underdeveloped understanding of the Holy Spirit, well, then I'd be a very wealthy man. But apparently they don't pay up. That's, I have to make my money somewhere else. So the claims that are often made by Charismatics and Pentecostals are that we do not believe in the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. We've somehow put the kibosh on the Spirit, and because of that, we Lutherans are missing out on our God-given right and ability to speak in tongues, to operate in the signs and wonders, hear the voice of God speaking directly into our hearts by giving us prophecy, dreams, visions, and words of knowledge, etc. Yeah, apparently, you know, we're part of a dead religion. I don't know if you've heard that, but that's the claim. So now, I touched on some of these claims last Pentecost Sunday when I preached on Acts chapter 2. Please see the Kongsvinger Lutheran Church website for further details. Now, suffice it to say that we Lutherans do not have an underdeveloped or defective understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. Instead, we have a very measured, careful theology of the work of the Holy Spirit that pays careful attention to what the Holy Spirit has revealed in Scripture about His works and activities and does not go beyond what is written in the Bible. And our Gospel text today if we pay careful attention to what is said, will give us profound insight and comfort regarding the work of the Spirit, especially as it relates to the writings of the apostles. So we will begin by looking again at John 14, 26, which is highly misunderstood by charismatics. We will then carefully work our way through our gospel text, noting the context and what and to whom is Jesus making specific promises, and then we'll examine other passages of Scripture that will shed light on these details, and finally we'll ask the question, so what? What does it benefit me? What does it mean to us? You know, the show me thing, it's like, you know, what's in it for me, right? Again here, John 14, 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, Jesus says, he will teach you all things, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, by way of a little bit of foil, Jennifer LeClaire, she is one of the editors of Charisma Magazine. And in her article titled, Four Things You Can Do If You Can't Hear God's Voice, describes how immediately after she was saved that she began hearing the voice of God, audibly, apparently. But there are apparently many, many, many Christians who are not hearing directly from God like she is. And so she wrote this article to help them unclog whatever is blocking God's voice so that they can hear directly from heaven. Apparently not hearing God's voice is like a plumbing problem. You know, maybe you got a hair stuck in the you know, your hearer, and I don't know how this works. So these, these are four things that she says that you can do so that you can hear directly God's voice. Step number one is believe that God wants to speak to you. Well, I believe that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have a Bible, right? But here's what she says. Quote, if you don't believe God wants to speak to you, well, it's likely that you won't hear his still small voice. The key here is that you are to expect him to speak. David said, O Lord, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning you will direct my prayer to you, and I will watch expectantly. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you and may be speaking to you more than you realize. And then she quotes our gospel text. But the counsel of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. Huh. Interesting. She's not paying attention to who the you is in that text, and we'll get to that. By way of summary, though, here's the other three things you need to do if you're not hearing God's voice directly. Number two, you need to position your heart to hear his still small voice. I have no idea what that means. 
I mean, which position do I need to put my heart in? This position? You know, maybe this one. You know, I, I mean, it's kind of like the old days when we had televisions that had the antenna on them. You remember this, right? Okay, this was, this was always a very fun thing when I wanted to watch my favorite cartoons. There was one channel where, in order to get the reception, the rabbit ears had to be like this. Okay. There was another channel. They had to be like this. Okay. And then one of my favorite cartoons, it was on one of those channels that was like not so good. All right. There was a lot of snow. And so in order to watch that, you had to hold on to the rabbit ears. And if you let go, it got snowy again. Very frustrating. Okay. So step number two from Jennifer LeClaire about positioning your heart to hear his still small voice makes no sense to me. How does one position your heart? I don't know. Step three, learn the fine art of listening. Now, my wife agrees that this is an important step. Okay, But in this context, I'm not sure what this means either. And then step four is fellowship more with the Holy Spirit, which again leaves me scratching my head. How does one fellowship with the Holy Spirit? We have fellowship time here at church after our service, right? We go over there and we enjoy the sweets, the cakes, the donuts, and all the wonderful things, and the coffee, and even talking with each other. Is that what we're supposed to do? Have a donut and coffee with the Holy Spirit? I don't get it, right? So these are the four steps that you can go through to unclog what's clogged if you're not hearing directly from God. Note this fact. That nowhere in the Bible are these four steps given. You can't go to the book of Second Hesitations, chapter 66, and read these four steps, the unclogging what's clogged regarding hearing God's voice. And there's a reason for that. Now, this kind of then begs the question, what's the problem here? Well, the problem is, is that apparently God's word isn't enough. We need other words. And these other words don't make any sense. Now, let me give you a metaphor that we will all understand immediately because of this week. All right? We are now living in a world where the world has gone crazy. And I mean that. Absolutely crazy. If somebody who is born a man, all right, born male, and it's on their birth certificate, boy, okay? These things are not hard to figure out, by the way. You know, it always amazes me. It's like, you know, we always ask the question right after a baby's born, was it a boy or a girl? Well, it was a boy. How'd you know? <laughs> right? If you're not sure how do you discover these things, come talk to me privately afterwards, right? But apparently, if you're born a man, you can now self-identify as a woman, and you can now use women's facilities in your local Target store. And all of us are going, oofta, what is going wrong with the world, Right? Well, see, think of it this way. Here's where the tension is. The question has to do with where do we go to find what is true or not true? Right? Is truth objective or is it subjective? Think about this. The person who says it's subjective says, I reject what my birth certificate says and what my body looks like and my DNA and I substitute what is real and true with something I feel in my heart. Right? And it leads to all kinds of absurdities. But now we have the federal government saying, you cannot, without risking losing your job or being branded a hater, say to that person, dude, wake up. Come out of your dreamland and come back into reality. 
That's apparently hateful. Okay? So people want to believe what they want to believe, and they don't want to be told what they don't want to be told by objective truth and reality. Right? Well, so I've decided this week that I now self-identify as a 21-year-old movie star. That's right. And I have six-pack abs. Expect the paparazzi to show up any minute. Okay, right? Now, those of you who are interested in showing me a photograph of myself, I don't want to see it. I know that this is true about me because I feel it and I felt a feeling. So therefore, it's true. Right? Now, you're laughing, though. But understand this. This is deadly serious. People play the same game when it comes to God's Word. Rather than listening to what God has said in His written Word, they feel that they have a better Word. A better one than what's written in Scripture. And it's all because I felt it. Or maybe I had goosebumps when it happened. Or maybe the person who told me was really charismatic and had a great delivery, and he made me laugh. These are no ways of determining truth when it comes to God. In fact, this is a form of idolatry. Rejecting the objective word of God and substituting it with our own words. And the reality is, is that we are all guilty of this. Every single one of us. So let's come back to our text. We'll do a little bit of textual work here. Pay attention to some things. Using basic reading comprehension skills. Right. So we'll go back to a Gospel of John chapter 14. And you'll notice that our pericope begins with verse 23. And here's what it says. It begins with these words. Jesus answered him. Answered who? What was the question Jesus was answering? I always love it when the, uh, the people who put the lectionary together do stuff like this. It's like, you're going to start with a text that says Jesus answered him and you're not going to tell me the question. Oh, need to talk to that committee. Anyway. So who was Jesus talking to? What was the question? I'm glad you asked. Let's look back at verse 22. Here's what it says. Judas, not Iscariot. And we all went, okay, not that one. Okay, the other Judas. The other Judas asked Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Oh, now there's your question. Notice that Judas's question assumes that Jesus isn't going to manifest himself to everybody. Remember last week's sermon? I hope you do. But then again, you know, what's the point of preaching if you're not going to remember? I know you guys can take a quiz on it and you all ace it. But anyway, here's what I said in last week's sermon. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Whose word? The apostles' word, right? Notice that Judas' question assumes and understands that Jesus is not going to manifest himself to everybody but only to his apostles. And this makes sense because Jesus said in John 13, 20, Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Who did Jesus send? His apostles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Well, actually, Mark is not in it, but you know, Peter and James and John, those guys, right? And then, of course, Jesus says of the ones he sent, in Luke 10, 16, the one who hears you, not me, but them, hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So you kind of get the idea here, right? So Judas, not Iscariot, 
said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus is answering this question. Now, here's his answer. Ready? If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. We will come to him, make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Well, that kind of begs a question. Where do we go to get Jesus' words? Do we climb a mountain, assume the lotus position, and listen to the voice of God on the wind or swaying like this? Is that where we go to find Jesus' words? Or maybe it's inside a feeling that you had. No, it's not that either, right? I know of only one place you can go to find Jesus' words. Only one. It's to the writings of the ones he sent. And he said of them, when somebody hears you, they hear me. Now, another quick thing. Some translations may have this translation. If anyone loves me, he will obey my word. Bad translation. The Greek word there is tereo. I know that you all love it. You know, learning Greek words, put this one in your vocabulary list. But it's important that you understand where this word comes from. It's a military term. It means to guard, keep. When Jesus was dead and his body was in the tomb, the guard, the Roman soldiers were tereoing the tomb. They were guarding it. It's a little bit of a different picture, right? Obedience is part of it, but it's not really the, the, the main idea. The idea is to hold, to preserve, to keep it sacred. So, the one who loves you, anyone who loves me will keep my word. A little bit of another note here. Conditional clauses are a little bit tricky in Greek. Jesus is not saying, you are saved by keeping my word. Oh, we've found the one thing we've got to do in order to be saved. Ha <laughs> ha, we just have to keep and guard Jesus' words. No, this kind of conditional sentence works like this. In front of my house, you know, in front of my house is a street. And when I'm on the third floor in the pirate fun land, that, that is my office, right, looking down on the street, I know this. If the pavement is wet, it's raining. I know this might sound profound, but notice that was a conditional statement. If the pavement is wet, it's raining. I'm not saying that my pavement being wet causes it to rain. I'm saying that because my pavement is, is wet, that it is raining. Same idea here. If you truly are one who loves Christ, you do keep his words. Because you've been raised from death to life. It's a sign that you are a Christian, not the thing that makes you one. That's the point. So Jesus then goes on, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. And now here's our kind of focus verse. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Who is the you and the your and the you in this sentence? Is it you? Is it me? No. It's Jesus' disciples. It ain't us. It's the ones Jesus is talking to. Jesus is literally promising His disciples a special miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. And this gift is the ability to miraculously remember the things that Jesus said, did, and taught. And that's important. Because I don't know if you've noticed this about people. Human memory has a way of kind of, well, wearing out. And the older I get, the less I remember what it was like to be skinny and 18 and young. And 
Right? I have a memory of these things. Okay? And so it's important that Jesus here is promising the gift of total recall. Terrible movie, by the way. I didn't really like that one. But that's the idea. The ability through the Holy Spirit to remember the things that Jesus said. And this then is dealing with what we call the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. That's what this text is about, and that's what Jesus is promising. Now, Peter, writing in his epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16-21, through 21, he says this. He says, "...for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ." Now, there are some who would like to make Jesus kind of like the uh, 2,000-year-old Middle Eastern equivalent of Zeus. Right? He's not. He's not a myth. It says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory. This is a reference to the mountain of transfiguration. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, we heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. Now watch the turn here. That's quite the experience. Hearing the voice of the Father, seeing Jesus transfigured, brilliant white, there's Moses and Elijah, right? You'd think, well, that's the thing that clenches this. Watch what Peter says. And we, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed than the voice of the Father? Yeah. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What's he referring to? What's more sure than that voice of the Father that he's heard? What is this bright light shining in a dark place? Answer, he continues, knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Wow. That's right. The Holy Spirit carried Jesus' disciples as well as the prophets of old. And just as Jesus promised, the Spirit miraculously brought back to Peter's and all of his disciples' remembrance all that he did and taught. And this makes it so that we know now The New Testament is not merely the writings of fallible men. Truly, they were fallible. It is also the Holy Spirit-inspired words of God. And therefore, it is inerrant. It's inspired. Or as the book of Hebrews says, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Oh, I trust you, if you try to master God's Word, which is a good thing to try to do it will master you because it's not like any other book out there these words have the holy spirit attached to them it's a living book or as paul writes in second timothy 3 14 through 17 but as for you continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture. This says all Scripture. All Scripture. Yeah, that writing stuff. Yeah, those books, those letters. All Scripture is theonoustos. That means breathed out by God, the Holy Spirit. 
breathing out His Word. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof. Oh, you can't do that nowadays. For correction, yeah, I can't do that either. For training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. There is no good work that God would call you to do in loving and serving your neighbor and in belief regarding what is true and rejecting of what is false that you will not be equipped by God's written word to do. Yeah. Well, that being the case, huh? to keep in guard Jesus' words is to keep in guard the Scripture and to reject all other words claiming to be coming from God. Now, this then begs the question, why did Jesus promise this special work of the Spirit to His disciples? Why? Well, the thesis sentence of the Gospel of John is found in John 20, verses 30-31. through 31. And here's what John writes. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. You see, God caused these books to be written so that you can be saved, so that you can have eternal life, so that your sins can be forgiven. This is why Jesus then, continuing with our Gospel text, said this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Peace Peace out of nowhere. Jesus starts talking shalom. Peace. That's what this is all about. That's what this book is really teaching us. Now, some of you here, if I were to put you on the spot and say, from memory, tell me what Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says. Some of you be able to do it. You say, oh, um, all right, well, I'm on the spot, but here you go. Um, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not the result of work so that no one may boast, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We know this text. It's a very familiar passage. But many of us are unaware of the great talk of peace that immediately precedes these verses or comes after them. Here's what Paul says. Ephesians 2.11 Therefore, Because of this, because you are saved by grace. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made by the flesh by hands. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. That's all of us. At one time you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and you were strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope without God in the world. And that's the condition of every one of us. We're all born dead in trespasses and sins. Each and every one of us. And notice what Paul says. Without hope. Without God. But now, Paul says, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. Jesus is our shalom. He has made us both 
won and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Yeah, that's right. Not only were we alienated from God, we were hostile to Him. In fact, that hostility still lives in us even if we're Christians. You see, none of us are born with the ability to say, hey, when it comes to God, I'm Switzerland. Yeah, I'm claiming neutrality here. You guys, you Muslims and you Christians and you Catholics and you Lutherans, you go fight it out. I'm going to go have some iced tea. None of us are neutral. According to Scripture, we are all born dead in trespasses and sins and hostile to God. Hostile. None of you are innocent. Not one. In fact, you really want to get technical here. We've all heard the story about the great rebellion that Lucifer waged against God in heaven, right? A third of the angels fell for the devil's deceptions and sided with the devil against God. And how'd that go for them? Didn't go well at all. They were cast out of heaven, sent to earth. Jesus even describes how Satan fell, kind of like a meteor from the sky. Great big crash. You sit there and go, yeah, that's right, yeah. God, he kicked the devil out. Yeah, here's the problem. You were born under the dominion of the devil and his demons. You were born hostile to God. You're not one of the good guys. You actually are siding with the bad guys. By nature, you were born this way. And you know what you deserve for that? The second death. An eternity in the lake of fire and hell with the devil and his angels. Which is why, by the way, humanity... On the day of judgment, those who persist in sin and unbelief end up in the same place where the devil and his demons ends up because they've sided with him. And that's you and that's me. And every time we say, God, I have a better word than your words. You tell me not to do this. Ah, I have a better word than that. Right? You tell me not to believe that or to believe this. Ah, I have a better word than that. You're engaging in hostility to God. And these are the very things that Christ came to forgive us for. This is why He bled and died. And this is why the Gospel is so amazing. Because in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. For He, Jesus, is our peace. He came and He preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And because of what Christ has done, Paul says, you're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. You're no longer enemy combatants. Your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we were all born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. But God in Christ has done the unthinkable. He's unilaterally made peace with us even while we were still sinners and hostile to God. In other words, if 
by these actions, God definitively proves he doesn't actually want to send you to hell, which is what we all deserve. Instead, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. Peace with God. And this is, not, this is the kind of peace that transcends all human understandings. This is the peace, the shalom, that first reconciles us to God and then by the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives through the Word begins to reconcile us to each other. Where there was once only hatred, hostility, and death, there is now love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and eternal life. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is what makes this truly good news. We are enemy combatants by nature. Many of us are even war criminals in this great war against God. And now we are called through these Holy Spirit-inspired words written by the ones whom Christ has sent to lay down our weapons. That's what we're called to do. The war is over. Show up. Bring your arms. Right? Lay down our weapons. Confess our guilt before God. But in so doing, we do not get what we deserve. Instead, we hear that we are pardoned given amnesty, and told by God Himself that we can go in peace. Oh, it's an, and it's better than that. Oh, would you like to be a citizen of God's kingdom? You get that too. Oh, you, want to, you get to be adopted into God's family as well. Who does this? Right? So these words of pardon and peace are so precious now to us who have been forgiven that we cannot help but keep and guard these precious words. Right? because they are the very words of eternal life. To lose these words due to neglect, or to lose these words by the twistings and connivings of the devil and his deceptions, to lose these words by foolishly thinking that we have better words because we felt something inside of our hearts, is to actually end up forfeiting life and peace itself. This is why we keep and guard them. Because these are the words of eternal life. And these amazing and comforting words from Jesus that the Holy Spirit brought back to the remembrance of His apostles, they were written for you. They were written so that you may believe in Christ and have life and peace with God through Him. The war is over. Christ has won. Lay down your arms. Better yet, why don't you instead beat your swords into plowshares? Because you're forgiven. You're pardoned. And God, through Christ, has declared peace to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Fire Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Fire Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>